Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. And now, the list of things that you can buy at the Chicago Reader store at ChicagoReader.com. Things to wear like Chicago Reader hats, t-shirts, bandanas, and face masks. Things for your daily life like the Chicago Reader camping mug, Chicago Reader tote bags, and a Chicago Reader reporter's notebook. Things for you to read like our Reader recipes, the Chicago Reader 420 Companion, our Chicago Reader Best of book series from journalists Maya Dukmasaba, Mike Sula, Ben Jarofsky, and Lior Galil, the Chicago Reader coloring book, and the Chicago Reader stay home puzzle. Find the Chicago Reader store at ChicagoReader.com and show your support for the nation's first free weekly news newspaper since 1971. Thank God. Science is back, baby. That voice you heard at the outset, of course, was Mayor Lori Lightfoot exclaiming her love for science and proclaiming her certainty, among other things, that the United Center will open next week and geezers like me can go get a vaccine. Why am I dubious? Why am I skeptical? Why do I not believe our mayor and our governor when they say I'll be able to have the vaccine? That's an interesting topic for conversation. But guess what? We're not going to have that conversation, that particular conversation right now. Instead, I'm going to do a deep dive that I've been waiting to do for probably a year with my dear friend and former partner in crime, the legendary Mick Dumkey, ProPublica reporter, finally published. He wrote it a while ago, but ProPublica finally published his epic, his opus, his you must read it now, run, don't walk to your internet. His examination, his investigation of Ben Lewis and the killing of Ben Lewis. Mick, are you ready to rock and roll? I am here, Ben, and ready to rock and roll. Well, let me just say this before we take this deep dive. Uh, Mick has was my first guest on the podcast. He's been a recurring guest on this show. We have had hour-length discussions of Republicans, doing this off the top of my head, Bob Dylan, Bruce Springsteen, uh, football, and all kinds of uh, up-to-date Chicago politics. But that, ladies and gentlemen, was just foreplay for what is about to come. Verbal foreplay, I might add. <laughs> just to clarify that. Because Ben Lewis and the story of Ben Lewis is one of these tales in, of Chicago involving race, politics, racism, gangsters, machine tactics, uh, policing that Mick and I have been fascinated with forever. And finally, Mick took the deep dive uh, and put together this brilliant investigation. Mick, before we go into some of the details, talk a little bit about how, you know, you found yourself attracted or uh, interested in pursuing the story of Ben Lewis. Go ahead. Well, first of all, Ben, it is indeed great to be back, and uh, it's great to be talking about this story because I know um, you and I have talked about this subject for years, and we've talked about, um, I've sort of updated you behind the scenes about the story in progress uh, for uh, off and on for about two years, almost two years now. So um, it is really good to be here and to actually be talking about it now that it's out in the world. Um, you know, the Ben Lewis murder, Ben, uh, 1963, for those who don't know even the basics, uh, just real quickly, uh, 24th Ward centered in the Lawndale area. Uh, ben Lewis was the first uh, black alderman of that ward. In fact, he was the first black elected official from Chicago's west side. And, um, and the night after he won a resounding reelection victory in February 2000, February 1963, um, he was found shot to death in his office. And we could get into more of the details later, but that's the basic, uh, that's what happened. And it's one of those mysteries of Chicago um, 
it's been out there, but the case has uh, never had any resolution. It's never been solved. So my interest in the case, I first read about this uh, years ago, um, the first time I read Boss by Mike Royko, classic work you and I both love, um, really a fable about not just the city of Chicago, but American politics in general, the rise and fall of a, a, maybe not the complete fall, but certainly the rise of a leader and the uh, the reign of a leader. Um, and there's a there's like a paragraph in that book about Ben Lewis. Other biographies of Daly, Richard J. Daly, have also mentioned it. Every so often, um, there have been local news reporters who have mentioned the story or done like a remember when kind of flashback kind of piece. But uh, I was really struck by the story. It, it sort of has haunted me. I think it haunted you, too. We've talked about it a number of times. And over the last few years, as I was doing reporting on other issues going on on the west side of Chicago, um, I started uh talking to people about it, I would ask people about it, and especially leaders and community residents from a certain generation, people who remember the incident, uh, they've certainly never forgotten it. And it struck me as, um, as I put in the story, it just seemed like it was still an open wound. It was one of those things where it's not just something that was seen as unfortunate or a, uh, yeah, I remember exactly where I was when I heard kind of incident, although that is also true, but it's something that really was kind of still raw for a lot of people because um, Ben Lewis, a complicated person, but for uh, all of his flaws, pluses and minuses as a politician, all that kind of stuff, the bottom line is he was an elected representative of the West Side. He was an important person in terms of breaking the racial barrier, and he was executed, and the case was never solved. And so that uncertainty, just the uh, vicious act as well as the uncertainty um, I think says so much about the way the West Side has been neglected in the decades since. Yeah, very well put. All right, let's, uh, before we get to the execution of Ben Lewis, uh, and Mick will get there, ladies and gentlemen. Uh, by the way, you can read the article. For those uh, who don't like to read, just listen to us. But you can also uh, supplement this conversation by actually reading the article as well. Uh, all right, so let's set the table a little bit about uh, Ben Lewis. Give us some background on who he was that would, you know, leading up to that day in February of 1963 when he was gunned down in his office. Go ahead. Well, he's kind of a mystery. His backstory is a little bit of a mystery. Um, when I was digging into this, I found some public records about basic details in his life, including his date of birth, um, obviously his, you know, the stuff about his death, like the coroner's report. I found some records of uh, some marriage records, of Ben Lewis. Um, I actually, Ben, uh, this didn't go into the story, but I actually, uh, right near the end of my reporting, uh, CPS dug up what they said were several old report cards from Ben Lewis when he was in school. Um, I, I'm not sure. If, I, I can't be 100% certain it's the same Ben Lewis, uh, but if it is, he wasn't a very impressive student, I'll tell you that. Um, but I think beyond uh, these kind of spare facts we have about uh, from from public official, so-called official sources, uh, most of what we know about Ben Lewis comes from reporting, um, from news stories in the 50s and 60s. And uh, a lot of that, I think, is, uh, is very interesting, but you have to read it with kind of a skeptical lens from this point in history because uh, what we would call today a uh, spin. Uh, you know, the way that Ben Lewis was portrayed in the news, there were puff pieces about Ben Lewis, how great he was, all the wonderful things he was doing in the community. You started seeing some of these stories like in the Chicago Defender um, soon before Ben Lewis was elected alderman for the first time or when he became committeeman. Um, and then uh, on the other hand, there were also some things that were very unflattering about Ben Lewis, especially after he died when some information about his personal life started to come out and uh, people responded to it. You know, he apparently had a number of girlfriends in addition to his wife. Um, he, uh, you know, had some deep problems with his various businesses in addition to being, an, an, you know, an office holder. Uh, certainly at that time, Ben, it's not that much different now. Being an office holder was a gateway to other kinds of uh, money-making schemes. And when you were the committeeman, 
slash ward boss and alderman that especially gave you an entryway into the insurance and real estate business in your ward. Um, so Ben Lewis had a real estate and insurance business and they weren't doing well. There were reports that he had borrowed money from gangsters to try to keep them going and so on. So I think the picture of Ben Lewis is very complicated, but what's clear is that he rose up through the ranks of the democratic machine. That was uh, really the only viable option um, for a lot of people, especially uh, African-Americans at that time. It was seen as, you know, in the, in the 40s, 50s, 60s, that was seen as really the only route. And even that, it was, uh, it was a long road to try to get anywhere in politics. But uh, by all accounts, it appears Ben Lewis worked his way up in the 24th Ward Organization, which had been a potent uh, force in democratic politics in Chicago and even nationally for decades. Um, Franklin Delano Roosevelt once described it as one of the greatest democratic wards in the country because of its ability to produce votes and overwhelming victories for Democrats. Um, So Lewis worked his way up at a time when the West side was just starting to change. African-Americans are moving in and it was clear that the old guard in the 24th ward uh needed some uh black faces to help it you know relate to voters and to try to get voters out to the polls so lewis was kind of the the guy who was the in the right place at the right time in terms of uh those circumstances all right uh we'll go a little further in uh, uh west side but let me just say, add this about your mention uh, your casual mention to his report card in defense of ben lewis i originally went through a box of uh, memorabilia my that i found in my parents house and i discovered a report card of my own from 1968 mick what a <laughs> <laughs> ben lewis was a shakespearean scholar compared to ben jarofsky okay i'm just putting that out there oh my god i'm like I was embarrassed. I didn't want to burn it or frame it. Uh, but uh, anyway, I digress. Uh, just when you started talking about report I appre- cards. I appreciate that candor and coming clean, Ben. We oh my God. hanging out there. A D. In, like there was industrial arts. The guy gave me a D. When they give you a D, make it's like a mercy killing. All right. You know what? Okay. okay. That's a, sorry about that tangent. I, I believe I got a C minus in uh, – <laughs> A C minus or a D in seventh grade sewing. Um, if that's any, I, was, I have no future in sewing. I also spent most of that term um, instead of in sewing class. We had like a whole shop slash home economics uh, cycle. So the 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 sewing part of it, I spent most of my class time in the principal's office, as I recall. But another story for another story. Class. No, I didn't know you were juvenile delinquent. Make all right. Let's get back to Ben Lewis. Um, so. Talk about what, when you say the 24th Ward, why don't you help people out, position it geographically uh, in the city of Chicago, and then position it historically. 1963, Ben Lewis is, uh, just got reelected. What, who is transitioning out of power? Who's coming into power? Uh, answer sort of these background questions on the 24th Ward. Go. Sure. The 24th Ward then and now is centered on the North Lawndale neighborhood. So for people who are familiar with um, – the streets, the grid of Chicago. We're talking like Roosevelt Road and Central Park. That's actually where the off where the ward office was at the time uh, Ben Lewis was reelected. At the time of his murder, that's where he's found. Um, Ogden cuts through the the neighborhood, but it's basically like uh, the the sort of far west side of Chicago. It actually the ward borders on the city limits. Um, it, it certainly did at that time. So uh, this was what was called at one point in time one of the so-called river wards in Chicago, wards uh, obviously along the Chicago River, which were uh, noted for having um, a lot of immigrants, a lot of immigrant neighborhoods, and they were also noted for uh, their corruption and the presence of organized crime going back decades. So... um, a little bit closer to the loop on the what we call the near west side uh, area around um, Little Italy, University of Illinois at Chicago. Now, um, this area was known at, at that back in the day as the bloody 20th Ward because of some of the violence, political violence that had occurred in it. It later became part of the first ward. I'm throwing these numbers out there for the real political geeks in Chicago. Um, but the first ward 
came to be known as sort of the uh, the outfit ward, the gangster ward in uh, this you know city politics. It wasn't alone though. I might I think that's what's important to note for our story right here. But anyway, we're talking about back to the days of Capone, even before uh, the Capone gang. Uh, some of these wards were uh, controlled by some uh, an alliance between politicians and organized crime figures. That's what's significant here. Um, and uh, go ahead, continue. No, go ahead. Well, I was going to say uh, some of the characters in the 24th Ward uh, that dominated the ward include, you made an allusion like Jacob Arvey, who was the, the legendary uh, committeeman uh, and close ally of Mayor Daley. But who was running the show? Or who was Jerry Truman's. Uh, of yes. FDR and Harry Truman. So yeah. Jake Garvey was a national political figure, and you're right. He's one of the people who built up the power of the 24th Ward. When Ben Lewis was uh, named committeeman uh, of the ward in 1961, I believe, um, uh, he credited his mentor, Jacob Arvey, with uh, helping to get him going in politics um, and, and spo- basically sponsoring him in uh, his rise to the 24th Ward. Um, and then after Jacob Arvey, there were such names uh, who became famous around Chicago as uh, Arthur X. Elrod, um, who was the ward boss uh, through much of the 50s in the 24th Ward and whose son uh, later became Cook County Sheriff, I believe. Um, so th- these are powerhouse names around Chicago politics. And um, Ben Lewis, uh, you know, essentially was picked by these men to be the, f- the first black leader on the West Side. And uh, so in those days, or back in the 40s when Jake, uh, Jacob Arvey was running the show, uh, it was a predominantly Jewish ward. As the 40s moved into the 50s, uh, and of course into the 60s, the Jews moved out of the West Side, and black a second migration of black people came in to the West Side. And Ben Lewis was in a position, Mick, to become the new political boss of the West Side or of uh, the 24th Ward. What did that mean in terms of potential lucrative sidelines for uh, Ben Lewis if he were to become the kingpin of the 24th Ward? It meant that uh, as the uh, ward boss, uh, back then the being the Democratic Party committeeman, the uh, party official who oversaw the ward and oversaw the patronage in the ward, was really a far more important position than being the alderman. Sometimes they were the same person, but in this case, initially, Ben Lewis was the alderman, but he served under ward committeeman slash ward boss um, Arthur Elrod, who was a county commissioner at that time. And then later, there was a guy named Sidney Deutsch who stepped in um, after Elrod died. And, and then Ben Lewis became the committeeman, at least in name, but there were still... Um, some powerhouse uh, uh, Jewish politicians, this guy named Izzy Horwitz, who was a power behind the scenes, largely. And so one of the themes of Ben Lewis's rise is, did he actually have any power? Even when he was collecting these titles, um, it certainly, the evidence suggested he had very limited power at best and that the ward was still controlled by some of these other people. Um, before we get into the lucrative part, Ben, I want to say one other thing that's it's something I feel kind of sensitive about is that in the 24th Ward, we're talking about a transition between uh, Jewish residents and Jewish politicians and then black residents and black politicians. But I just want to note this is not a, uh, a Jewish particular thing. Um, in neighboring wards, there were Irish ward bosses, there were Italian ward bosses, and they all kind of played the same game. And of course, at the top of the pecking order, the top of the machine was uh, a fellow Mick. Um, I'm a Mick, and there was a, uh, uh, using this term jokingly, everybody, don't get worked up. Uh, Richard J. Daly, of course, was the boss of all of, of the whole operation. And so um, this was very racial, but it was also multi-ethnic in its um, in the sort of racial politics that were going on. I think that's really important to note. Um, you'd asked me about the side businesses. So one of the advantages I alluded to briefly earlier, one of the advantages of being the ward boss or the alderman was that uh, you basically got to control so much of 
uh, city administration that happened in the ward. You basically, at that time, you got to pick uh, not just like building inspectors and other patronage workers, but you got to pick your own patrol officers. You got to pick the police officers who led the local, uh, uh, you know, uh, local station, essentially the local uh, district, police district. And um, so that meant that you had all kinds of control over both illegal and legal business in the ward. And people had to come through you to get a permit to operate a tavern, for instance. And so, of course, uh, if you need to go to the ward boss to get the permits you need to open your bar, um, you're probably going to decide to buy insurance from that same person uh, because you want life to be easy. You do not want the inspectors to come around. Um, and then the police were, of course, a very important part of consolidation of power because in places like the 24th Ward, um, there was so much illegal business going on as well. And uh, the police helped to uh, keep out the illegal business that you didn't want, and it helped to protect the illegal businesses that uh, were paying the politicians off. And so there ended up being this sort of triumvirate of power in wards like the 24th Ward between the machine politicians, uh, the police, and then organized crime elements. Oh, what a what a what a recipe! All right, so into that stew uh, steps uh, Ben Lewis. He's uh, elected, reelected by a resounding margin. Uh, the alderman. He's the committeeman. Uh, he's beginning to assert his uh, his identity uh, as the new political powerhouse on the in the twenty fourth ward, and he's found dead, shot to the head in uh, his ward office. What's the address, Mick, uh, on Roosevelt Road? It's it's uh, the 3600 block of West Roosevelt, so West right Roosevelt. at the corner at the time. The building is no longer there, but at the time it was uh, right at the corner of Central Park Avenue and Roosevelt Road. Got it. So he's found at Central Park and Roosevelt. Uh, only in Chicago would they allow a historical landmark like that to be demolished. Uh, I will refrain uh, from going on, on that uh, tangent. Uh, so... The police investigate. Ben, nobody in power wanted to keep this murder site around. I, I hear you. I hear you, you know, Mick. So, I, I'm sure no they would demolish. Yeah. I, they would demolish the play, the home where uh, Fred Hampton was uh, gunned down if they could. Uh, yeah, absolutely. Lorraine Hansberry's house on the south yeah. side. I mean, you know, all these places. Absolutely. Yeah, they get rid of every single, anything that has to do with black history in Chicago. All right. Uh, so he's discovered. So what, uh, take it from here. Now we get into the crime story. Uh, and so what are the early theories, Mick, uh, as to who did it and why it was done? Go ahead. Well, first of all, maintenance worker shows up for work at uh, around nine o'clock. Um, it would have been two days after election day, uh, 28th of February, and notices that the back door to the uh, to the office appears to be a jar goes upstairs and notices that um, some lights are on and that Ben Lewis's office door is slightly ajar as well and walks in and sees uh, you know a body lying prone on the ground and uh, obviously it turned out to be Alderman Lewis his arms were stretched out he was lying face down there was a like a cushion from a nearby couch that he kept in his office. There was a cushion over his head, covering his head, um, and his arms were stretched out in front of him. His wrists were handcuffed, and there was a cigarette between two of his fingers that had burned all the way down. So it appeared that uh, whoever carried out the murder had uh, let him have one more smoke before they took him out. And I think the coroner actually found some uh, small traces of alcohol in, in Ben Lewis as well. So he probably had a drink and a smoke before they offed him. Um, so within hours, there are just a flurry of police activity. Reporters are on the scene. The police are leaking stuff as soon as they find it to the reporters. Um, something that was really that really struck and kind of haunted me as just a small detail of they left him lying there. They left his body lying on the ground for at least a couple hours, um, not just to gather clues and stuff, but they actually let reporters, photographers come in and take pictures of this murdered man's body lying on the ground of his office, the floor of his office, 
before they took it away uh, to the morgue or the medical. At that time, it was a coroner, not a medical examiner's office. Um, so that that's kind of the scene of the crime. And, and you're, as you mentioned, Ben, immediately people started speculating about one what happened. One guy I talked to by the name of Fred Mitchell, um, who uh, was a uh, first a precinct worker, then became a precinct captain in 24th Ward organization, um, uh, lives now on a south side uh, retirement home, um, had a great conversation with him uh, like a year and a half ago, <laughs> uh, just sitting there talking about just all of this politics stuff going on, backstory. But he remembers very vividly, he had a patronage job downtown. He was a bailiff um, for the city, uh, like the city municipal court, I believe. And so he said he was coming back from a lunch or coffee run and he walks in and one of his uh, co-workers says, you know, Ben Lewis was found murdered last night. And he said, what? What happened? And the guy said, the syndicate killed him. So right off the bat, there were people, as soon as the word got out about the circumstances of how he was found, people immediately were saying this was an organized crime hit, which is what it looked like because there were so few clues found uh, left behind at the crime scene. And because, uh, Ben, of the fact that he was left for people to see, which was widely interpreted as a, uh, a message that uh, was, was being sent. Like, we want this guy to be found. His body's not going to be disappeared. We want to make a show of this kind of thing. So syndicate hit was one of the first um, things people were speculating about. They were, of course, speculating that there was a political power struggle. Lewis had just started talking about or leaking to the press the fact that he was interested in running for Congress. And his big election victory two days earlier showed that he uh, would would be a viable candidate. Um, of course, there's a whole issue of could he have possibly run without the machine's blessing? Should he have announced his intention to run for Congress without going in uh, to, to Mayor Daley and basically asking him uh, – uh, all those kinds of questions, but the fact that he was talking openly about his aspirations made a lot of people conclude that this was a political murder. Um, and then there were a bunch of other kinds of theories. It was a struggle over the insurance business. He had been in a legal fight. He'd actually been in court with uh, the people who were running uh, the former ward boss, Arthur Elrod. They were running his old insurance for firm, and they'd actually gone to court over the right to uh, attract patrons and the ways that they were doing business. Ben was actually shut out of trying to uh, get any clients that Elrod, the Elrod company had. He couldn't even compete with the Elrod people by an agreement. And when he tried to do that, they basically sued him in court. So was this some kind of power struggle over the lucrative side businesses that politicians enjoyed at that time? And then, of course, the other theory was uh, – um, related to his personal life. Um, as I mentioned before, it came out that he had a number of girlfriends, that he was at best a sloppy businessman, probably an unscrupulous one as well. Um, may have been uh, dipping into some of his clients' uh, insurance premiums and some of these kinds of things. So uh, the police got really interested in his personal life and they it appears from the records that exist that they spent the majority of their efforts interviewing people who were in uh, Lewis's personal orbit, including female friends, including um, various business clients and that sort of thing. And so these other, these other big questions out there about potential syndicate involvement, potential uh, political machine involvement, they were never really addressed by uh, by the police, which is a key part of like the story that I put together. Uh, let's just pause to repeat that, ladies and gentlemen. In this, the most political city uh, in America, or one of the leading candidates for that honor of the most political city in America, an up-and-coming rising political uh, star on the West Side is killed. And somehow or other, the investigation does not take a look at the political ramifications. I just let that point hang there for a moment. Take a deep breath. Now, I'm going to run through, Mick, the three uh, possible uh, contenders for who was behind the murder 
of Ben Lewis, and then I'll allow you to speculate on what you think about uh, all three. Uh, and so we'll start with the syndicate did it, which means the mob, for whatever reason. Uh, two, a competing politician, of, or somebody uh, on behalf of a competing politician who may have been upset that Ben Lewis was cutting into the goodies, uh, did it. Or three, it had something to do with his personal life, romance-related, a jealous husband, uh, who uh, he, that uh, Ben Lewis had, may have been messing around with that man's wife, something personal-related. All right, Mick, in your opinion, of those three, which is the most likely suspect for being behind Ben Lewis's murder? Go. I'll start with the least likely, which is the jilted lover, jealous husband theory. Um, if for no other reason than uh, the crime scene just does not have the look of, you know, uh, someone who rushed in there, who was angry, who shot. The, I mean, it was a cold, calculated murder. Uh, if they let him have a smoke, if um, his wrists were handcuffed, if there were basically no clues left behind. There were a couple of, um, there were a few drops of blood, a couple of uh, shell casings from the gun, 32 semi-automatic the police thought was used. Other than that, there was no, there were no clues left behind. That does not sound like someone who ran in, had a confrontation with Ben Lewis over who he was messing with or whatever. It just doesn't add up. The second two possibilities you mentioned, um, crime syndicate, and I think you said the uh, competing politician. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I will add a third, the police. We just got done talking a few minutes ago about how they were sort of a triumvirate of power in wards like this. And I actually come down on, uh, this was very politically motivated, but it's highly likely that, um, at the very least, people from all three of those sources of power were, if not directly involved in the carrying out the killing, at least had notification or something before. Just the way things worked back then, to take out a sitting elect elected official in a powerful ward like the 24th Ward, like someone has to approve that. You don't just walk in there off the street knowing that the outfit controls this, knowing that the political machine controls this, knowing that the police officers in the ward report to uh, those two uh, powers that I just mentioned. Um, you don't just walk in off the street and do this. You know, you'd be a dead man yourself. And uh, so I just, I just, there's not evidence specifically stating this, Ben, but everything about the way the ward works suggests that a number of people probably approved it and that it was probably a combination of uh, individuals who wanted him gone and or carried it out. They wanted him gone. Why? Well, as one person I talked to for the story, uh, Joe Coleman, who has spent years researching this case and has just compiled some brilliant records on it, um, is putting together a film documentary uh, on it. As he's put it to me, you know, it was sort of a case of, will no one rid me of this troublesome priest? You know, so it's it's amazing. A number of people I talked to who knew some of the characters, including Ben Lewis, said to me something uh, to the effect of, you know, he just got too big for his britches. And so he was antagonizing machine politicians with a few flashes of independence by openly talking about his aspirations to move up the ladder to go to Congress. He um, was overseeing this ward. He was fighting for a bigger share of the insurance business um, at a time where you had this uh, other powerful people in that business. Um, in the illegal markets, you, you had a lot of illegal gambling in the ward at the time that was still, by all counts, controlled by the outfit, and especially this guy by the name of Lenny Patrick, who had been sort of the longtime uh, outfit boss of this particular part of the city. And so, you know, was there something going on with the gambling proceeds? At the very least, you know, how do you do something like this without the outfit signing off on it in some way? That's just dangerous. Um, so, again, what I'm getting at is 
you, I think you would ask me what the, what their motives would have been. I think there's possibly the political motive is the one that's, that's pretty obvious. I mean, he was a politician despite very uh, murmurs about, you know, Ben Lewis's side deals. Was he paid off? Was he dipping in, you know, was he getting involved in gambling and some of this that may be possible, but there's really no evidence that that is what truly antagonized people. What we know is that Ben Lewis was intending to, uh, grab more power. And this has every look of a power struggle that Ben Lewis lost. Yeah, and he lost it uh, decisively. Uh, by the way, I'm, just before we move on from that, that was a great riff, Mick. Uh, the, the least likely candidate for a, a motive being the jealous uh, husband, the jilted lover, is, of course, the one that the press fed us. So I just want to point out, ladies and gentlemen, uh, the Chicago Press Corps in the 1960s, low bar on journalistic excellence. Oh, it was a jilted <laughs> lover. Everyone knows that. Um, and and they did have some really great reporters who covered politics and who covered organized crime then. And I find it mystifying that more people didn't openly talk about what wasn't talked about in the discussion. Now, I, you know, in fairness, I suppose, to uh, you always make fun of me for saying to be fair. Yes. <laughs> um, so here's my to be fair line for the story, Ben. Okay. Uh, the police department said over and over again, police brass said over and over again, we do not believe this was an organized crime hit. Yeah. They said that almost from the beginning, which now we can look back and say, well, that's really suspicious because if, if there's one thing it looks like is an organized crime hit. And they said that repeatedly. Yeah. Um, but we also have to acknowledge that there were uh, police officers, uh, you know, there were patrol officers who literally worked as bag men. And their job was they went around and collected the payments uh, from uh, the payoffs from the, the gangsters to the gamblers and they delivered them to the politicians and to the other cops. You know, there were there were cops who literally did that job up to, at the time, uh, one of the people who oversaw the investigation several rungs up the ladder um, was a police officer by the name of uh, Maurice Begner, who was on FBI lists of uh, law enforcement officials who had been corrupted by organized crime. And I'm not saying that he called off this investigation. I don't have any evidence of that, but... I'm just telling you, there's a whole lot of smoke here about, um, you know, law enforcement people who uh, had themselves were, were themselves were working for the other side. You know, there's no doubt about that. All right. Now, uh, I'm going to just make this one point and move on from this in terms of the reporting. My experience, having uh, done a lot of reading about 60, uh, 60s reporting on police and race and politics, really the reporters in Chicago did not start taking a hard look at some of these issues that you're raising really until like post 68 democratic convention, the shooting definitely after it was triggered by the shooting of Fred Hampton. That was when you really, if you take a look at the tribunes coverage of the shooting of Fred Hampton, which is the conventional way mainstream journalists covered cases like that they just took the police story hook line and sinker and left it at that and it was some mavericks at my beloved bright one the chicago sun times that that took, presented an alternative view so yeah you're I, right you're right I, I, and it wasn't that different in the ben lewis thing um two two quick notes uh, on this uh first of all the chicago defender covered this case and they often brought a different perspective. There was a column I remember reading, or it may have been an editorial um, a few weeks after Ben Lewis was murdered, where uh, the defender basically weighed in and said, look, uh, the police department is making this big show of all the people they're interviewing, all the work they're doing. Um, I think they even threw a bone and said, you know, it doesn't mean every detective isn't doing his job. They're all, you know, a lot of them are working hard and and they're certainly giving the impression that they're looking into this case seriously. But beneath that, they're not trying to solve this. I mean, there's a column that came out not long after the murder that came out and said that. OK, so there were people out there. Um, also, uh, Joe Coleman, the guy I mentioned, who's done all this great research. He dug up a bunch of great archives of um, uh, 
the late Len O'Connor, um, op-ed pieces that Len O'Connor, I believe, had delivered on Channel 5. I think he had like a uh, – he basically gave like a TV uh, editorial or column like on the air. And seeing some of these uh, – his the copy of, of these actual – the text of these actual uh, pieces that he gave – he was all over the Ben Lewis story and he was analyzing the politics of it from the beginning. What an embarrassment this, this is to Daly. I mean, Ben, we've left out a key part of the story, which is the fact that Richard J. Daly was running. He was, he was locked in the toughest reelection battle of his entire tenure in 1963 at the time Ben Lewis was killed. Um, he was, a. Uh, this was at the end of February, the, uh, Mayoral, uh, he, he, of course, won the primary. I don't even think he had a Pullman in the primary, but the mayoral election was going to be decided the first week of April, a few weeks later. So his opponent, Benjamin Adamowski, was hammering him already for crime and corruption on his watch. And then Ben Lewis gets gets murdered. And Adamowski made a big deal of this. And so Daly was on the defensive the whole time. So I think that's a key part of the backdrop to this whole story. Well, we'll we'll get to Richard Daly. Uh, before we get to Daly, I'll go to the FBI. And uh, I, my readings of history from the '60s in Chicago to '50s and the '60s in Chicago and into the early '70s is that uh, J. Edgar Hoover's FBI had everyone's phone tapped. And they were listening to the conversations of. Uh, Elijah Muhammad and the Nation of Muslim. They were listening to the conversation of mobsters. They were listening to the conversation of aldermen. They were definitely they were listening uh, to the conversation of uh, black activists, Black Panthers. I mean, yeah, they you know Martin as well as I do. King, yeah. Martin Luther King. They, but I'm talking in particular Chicago, and they were right. listening. So, do you think, Mick, that somewhere buried? In files that obviously you have never seen, at the FBI, the secret to what happened to Ben Lewis is revealed in some transcript of a conversation that the FBI taped. I certainly wouldn't rule it out. Um, I mean, as it is, you know, for this story, I went through thousands of pages of FBI documents, uh, mostly files on Lenny Patrick, other crime figure, Lenny Patrick, Richard J. Daly, Ben Lewis. Um, found several, you know, found uh, not not hundreds, but dozens of pages about Ben Lewis. Um, so they kept, you're right, they kept voluminous records. They were talking to informants. They were scooping up all kinds of information back then. And I don't know, I, I can't sit here and say that I think that they have the secrets of Ben Lewis, but I, I will say that it's, um, and, and the reason for that, Ben, is that I think the FBI didn't see this. This is a different problem. I think the FBI did not see this case as something that it needed to really bother itself with at that time. It was a murder. It was a local issue. Um, they, at that time, uh, weren't going to investigate murder. Uh, you know, they had just started because they'd come under, under heat um, a few years earlier for doing very little under J. Edgar Hoover to... Uh, to deal with organized crime, they started to pay more attention to organized crime. So they, uh, you can see in some of these mem memoranda that are in the files where there's a back and forth between the Chicago office and Washington, D.C., um, addressed to the office of the director, i.e. J. Edgar Hoover, talking about the Ben Lewis case. And they would say things like, well, there's no indication yet that uh, it's a federal issue. And... Uh, you know, which is just their way of saying, ah, oh, there's nothing here that really interests us at this time. It's just a, it's a murder case. We're going to be we're going to be kept up to speed um, by local authorities. But it, so they're they're basically taking their cues from uh, the Chicago Police Department on whether, you know, it was an issue that they needed to look into. And they concluded very early on that they didn't, even though they had all this information about gangsters operating literally a couple doors down from where Ben Lewis was murdered. And that a tip came in uh, from an informant um, within about a year of the murder, maybe a little over a year after the murder, uh, the informant stressing to the FBI, you know, that whole area where Ben Lewis was killed is controlled by Lenny Patrick and his buddy Dave Yaris. 
And, you know, that's as good as saying, like, if you want to get to the bottom of Ben Lewis, these are the guys who control the area. And there's no evidence that I've seen that they ever followed up on that. Well, uh, I have a theory, Mick, uh, that I may have shared with you uh, down through the years. And that is this when it comes to Jagger Hoover in the 60s and Chicago. Uh, well, Jagger Hoover's pattern across the country, but in particular, I'm talking Chicago. He had his agents gathering information on all kinds of people, listening to all kinds of conversation, not so much because he was trying to figure out who did what and what crime, but he was just gathering blackmail material that he could use. So his way of, I I could talk about other cases, I won't go down that road, where I believe this was absolutely the case in regards to Mayor Daly, but it could very easily be his way of saying, letting Daly know from time to time, well, that's interesting that you haven't discovered who killed Ben Lewis. Wink, wink, nudge, nudge. We all know who did it. You you step out of line and suddenly the bright one or the trip, most likely the Tribune will get uh, the story fed to them. Do you think I'm being overly uh, cynical, uh, Mick? No, I do not. I because there's just too much information, uh, too many uh, tips, too many uh, just you know things that are worthy of following up in these files that it never they were never followed up on. And you know, even like uh, I'm certainly not the first person to go through the daily FBI files. Uh, people have gone through them before, but you know, looking at them with my own eyes for the first time, I just found them fascinating. I mean, most of the files are about threats against Mayor Daley, um, which is not inappropriate. That's that's fine. He was an elected official. They were supposed to keep track of that stuff if they were getting cues about people potentially um, wanting to attack the mayor. Uh, but there are other tidbits about payoffs in the Democratic Party system. There were, um, there's also some information files about people in the democratic machine, members of Congress and their close alliances with gangsters. I mean, at that time, as we mentioned at the, at the top of our discussion, uh, most of the West side was controlled by politicians who were close with gangsters. And we could, you and I, we could, you know, uh, go through a roster of names, but the point is that, uh, there were all these kinds of ties. And while there's, I haven't seen anything that implicates uh, Mayor Daley himself personally. It's the whole story of Mayor Daley. He made these alliances so that he could stay on top of power. And he operated in that way, Ben, probably not that much differently from what you're describing about J. Edgar Hoover, where he had all this information stored away about various people and that he could use that when he needed to, to keep everybody in place, which is kind of the game as you're describing about J. Edgar Hoover. So long story short, uh, yes, I think that is entirely possible. They collect a lot of information just for their own political purposes rather than law enforcement purposes. Yeah, okay. All right. Uh, so then we get uh, to the elephant in the room, and we've uh, you've alluded to him several times. Let's discuss it. Mayor Richard J. Daly. And youngsters, that's not the mayor that was ruling the city when you were in grammar school and high school. That's his son. Richard J. Daley would rule Chicago from 1955 to 1976, and he pretty much wrote the book on how to run Chicago, uh, as, and his son practiced it, and Rahm Emanuel practiced it, and Lori Lightfoot in her own ways practicing it as well. All right, Mick, what did Mayor Richard, Jaley, what did Mayor Richard J. Daley know, and when did he know it about the murder of Ben Lewis? Well, he appeared to be really shocked when the news came out. Um, I didn't come across any indication that he knew about it ahead of time. What's more damning in the case of uh, Richard J. Daly is the fact that after um, expressing his uh, you know, sadness for his friend, he referred to Alderman Lewis as his friend, after uh, expressing his sadness and talking about how great an alderman Ben Lewis was and how well he served his people and how loved he was by his, his constituents. Uh, Richard J. Daly said virtually nothing about the murder or the investigation in the months or years that followed. I found no evidence of it. Um, More damning is also that the first city council meeting 
uh, this didn't go into my story, although uh, I find it absolutely fascinating. The first city council meeting after Ben Lewis was murdered, um, you know, a large chunk portion of the meeting was uh, committed to Alderman basically standing up and eulogizing Ben Lewis. Um, you and I have uh, been present at city council meetings in more recent times where uh, we hear eulogies for someone who's just retiring. Um, and so this is a very familiar kind of scenario, uh, one after another, topping themselves, uh, you know, with their uh, just uh, honey-tongued uh, speeches praising this late alderman. Um, and then there was uh, one of the... One of the, I think there were three or four aldermen who did not go along with the Democratic machine. Of course, Leon uh, Dupre from Hyde Park, independent uh, Democrat. And then there were a couple of Republicans, one of them, uh, John Holen from the 47th Ward. Um, and Alderman Holen uh, was pushing for an independent investigation into the murder of Ben Lewis, an inve investigation I might add separate from the police investigation uh, for the very reason of all the things they're talking about, the well-known corruption within the ranks of the police department and its influence uh, by the Democratic machine. So he called for an independent investigation, um, introduced a resolution to that effect, which, as you might imagine, was uh, soundly <laughs> defeated in the city council. I think it was 47 to 3, and if it wasn't that exact vote, it was some other lopsided number like that. Um, and uh, again, a vote total that we are familiar with from the uh, more recent era as well. Uh, God, um, <laughs> so that was, you know, the, the chance for uh, the mayor and his allies to weigh in on the side of saying, we're going to do everything we possibly can to get to the bottom of this. Uh. And, uh, you know, they passed up the chance to do it. They didn't want it to go forward. What a city, so. Mick. Nothing's changed. I'm sorry, Mick. Nothing's changed. 47-3. I bet it was Leon Dupre, John Holen, and who would have been the third? I don't know. Was Seymour Simon in the city council then? I mean, it would have been some obscure independent who was clinging to his real I think Seymour, Seymour Simon had been uh, – this is a real side note for Chicago political uh, geeks, I guess, um, or fanatics, maybe is a better word. But I believe by that time, Seymour Simon had already been uh, taken by <laughs> under his wing by Richard J. Okay. Bailey and, <laughs> and put in charge yeah. of the county board, um, uh, which is okay. actually it's sort of it's a, it was a chess move that was kind of related to what yeah. was going on here because um, – Daly recognized that the 24th Ward was no longer the seat of Jewish political power in Chicago. So he decided to go find somebody else to add to his coalition. And Seymour Simon was a North Side a Jewish politician. And so Daly brought him into his fold and put him, uh, appointed him to lead the county board. And then I believe at a certain point in time, their relationship went sour and Simon went independent, and I think he served as alderman again after yes, being county board president. Um, so that's that's getting that's like in the years following the Ben Lewis murder, yeah. but it's not unrelated to this because it's about all this, you know, the old machine guys trying to hold on to power any way they could. Yeah, long shot chance, very long, exceedingly long, so long that it's fading from reality. As I say, it Ralph Metcalf who hadn't officially broken from Daly by, in 1963, but might have been talked into it, uh, but whatever. Anyway, neither here nor there. I'll it was not that, him. I don't think he him. was – was he in the city council in 1963? Um, uh, he may have uh, been uh, – he may have come a little bit after that. But I know that the um, there were six black aldermen. Um, Lewis was killed, so there were five – and they all voted with the machine. The silent six, they call them. The silent all six. Right. Uh, they earned that title, too. Uh, so anyway, so in conclusion, Mayor Daley, uh, what, knew and didn't, knew, knew enough not to say anything, uh, had plausible deniability. Uh, what do you think it is, Mick? I am going to err on the side of um, he probably got some information. This is a guy who got all kinds of information from all kinds of sources. I find it hard to believe that he would have known nothing about what happened with this murder. Um, 
I am willing to believe that he didn't want the murder to happen, that he certainly didn't want it to happen while he was running for re-election. Um, <laughs> yeah. All the things we could say about uh, Richard J. Daley, I have never heard anything about him being a murderous sort. He had other ways to send people out to political pasture. Um, uh, is, you know, not getting into the morality of actually killing someone. I'm just saying, there's a lot we say about Richard J. Daley. I've never heard that. I'm not associating him with the murder, but... I do think it is an indictment of him that he failed to pursue it vigorously afterward. Absolutely. All right. Fair enough. Uh, and finally, on a more personal level, this is a masterpiece, ladies and gentlemen. I urge everybody uh, to read it if you really want to understand Chicago politics. But in my humble opinion, there has got to be much, much more uh, that you've assembled, that you know, that you could put uh, into a larger story or a book, etc. What's next for you uh, in terms of pursuing the Ben Lewis story? Well, I would like to um, put it into some kind of larger format. I, as you and I have talked about a book, um, I think that for all, everything that's been written, so much has been written about the outfit, organized crime. A lot has been Richard been written about Richard J. Daly, yet I still feel like um, there's a missing part of both of those stories, uh, which is what was happening in Chicago neighborhoods during the reign of Richard J. Daly when the outfit had such a huge influence, um, when the machine had such a huge influence. What did that actually mean for like neighborhoods on the west side of Chicago, for instance? What did that mean in terms of the legacy of policing that we're still talking about now? Police accountability, we still are have a problem with the lack of it now. Um, we still have problems with, um, you know, the, the power in the city and, and where it's concentrated and some communities being shut out of it. Who gets the spoils? Who gets the uh, attention from the city for development? All these kinds of issues. And I think... This period we're talking about, the 50s into the 60s, was just an absolutely pivotal era for that. So I, I think, to me, the Ben Lewis murder is uh, an example, a very vivid um, and disturbing example of kind of how the die was cast back then um, in a way that we're, we're still dealing with now um, in terms of, you know, the police department the way it operated in black neighborhoods was basically to contain them at that time. Um, and uh, certainly the political apparatus, that was the strategy was to try to contain, uh, you know, black residents. And when you couldn't contain them, you tried to control them. Um, we, we didn't even mention Ben that these white political leaders on the West side at this time, they all lived in other neighborhoods. Hmm. They still controlled the West side, even though they moved to downtown or, you know, to North Lakeshore drive. Mm -hmm. um, and so it's like plantation politics, you know, as it was called. And I think that is a very important tale to, to tell because we're still grappling with the uh, aftershocks of it. Absolutely. Well, I hope you pursue it. Uh, and uh, it's a great story. I urge everybody to read it. Uh, Mick Dumke may be the youngest person in the city of Chicago who knows who Seymour Simon is. Uh, <laughs> that's either an astounding bit of research or a cry for help on the part of Mick Dumke. <laughs> Ladies oh, and gentlemen, nobody oh. in the city of Chicago under the age of 60 knows who Seymour Simon is except for Mick Dumke. Uh, ben, our... Uh, anyway. our, our our significant others and our friends are uh, very generous uh, people uh, to be pitied. Okay. That's all I can say. So, well, you know, uh, I have my own secret life where I just obsess over things and uh, my wife has her own life. You know what I'm saying? It's sort of like, they don't really come together. Uh, like she knows fashion. I don't know anything about fashion et and so forth. And it, it's true. It's all it's, true. Uh, you know, everybody has their area of expertise. I'm not saying one is better than the other, but it's truly uh, very impressive. If I were like the Bulgarian judge and you were a diver, I'd give you a 10 for knowing <laughs> Seymour Simon. Well, Betty was an alderman. Then he went to the county board. I'm like, wow. Uh, 40th Ward, I want to say. All right. Mick Dumke, uh, thank you so much. I, I, I hope I'm pleading with you. I'm urging you to take this further. 
uh, turn it into a book. I've said I think it should be a Netflix series. It's just such a powerful story uh, with so much resonance uh, to today. And it, it also, make it, it's a, a moment in time in Chicago, 1963, before just radical uh, transformation, racial transformation, political transformation. So it's like it's like a snapshot of a, of a moment that people, I think, are really fascinated with the early 1960s. Kennedy was still in the White House. Right. And um, there is a so Kennedy tied to this case, uh, by the way. Uh, Jack Ruby lived, a, grew up a block away from Lenny Patrick um, and so forth. It's I mean, it's crazy. And, you know, Ben, we didn't even talk about the second half of the story. I mean, this story extends the characters in this drama, act, you know, actually uh, uh, move into the 80s and the 90s and beyond. Um, uh, so I think that you're absolutely right. It's uh, literally there are reverberations from this this incident and from this time period that we are still coping with now there's no doubt well we may have to do a second dive uh although mick and i have been uh, promising or threatening depending on your point of view to do uh the deep dive in 1971 this is a year of particular interest to mick and myself for many different reasons i just discovered as mick knows uh in a box in my uh, parents garage a uh uh, WCFL top 40 list of songs, which I've been obsessing over. I wrote something for the, the reader newsletter about it. Uh, and Mick and I have, have said that we're going to do a deep dive on the year 1971 musically, but we could also go into the politics of it and uh, just have a, and the sports end of it. The great Cubs were uh, battling for contention in 19. <laughs> what a terrible team. Anyway, uh, so there's a lot for us to discuss, but we could do a part two on Ben Lewis, uh, no doubt about it. Um, all right, Mick, thank you so much. Uh, thanks for coming on, and thanks for doing such a great job. If you want to read it, ladies and gentlemen, Mick Dumkey, ProPublica, right, Mick? That is correct. Thanks, guys. Right. It's great to be on. That's the great Mick Dumkey. I'm Ben Jarofsky. Take care, everybody.